You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, Dr. Corey Little Edwards will continue our Race, Truth, and Reconciliation series with Installment 5. Dr. Edwards delves into the sociology and history behind the nation's white supremacy, white hegemony future. Let's get started. Well, I must admit, I am truly grateful to Bishop Moody for inviting me to share with you on this very important topic of race, truth, and reconciliation. Now, my first identity is the beloved daughter of the Most High God, but I'm also a sociologist and a scholar of race and Christianity in America. And so a good deal of what I'm going to be sharing with you is informed by my calling and expertise in that area. Now, like I said, I'm a sociologist and uh, I'm actually in pretty good company. I don't know if you know this or not, but Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a sociologist. Yeah, he majored in sociology at Morehouse University. Now, given the moment that we're in right now, I imagine, you know, it's quite hard not to think of him, not to think of the contributions that he made to race, truth, and reconciliation. Now, many people, when they do think of Dr. Martin Luther King, it's his I have a dream speech that comes to mind. One of the most repeated lines of this speech is, I have a dream that little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Don't get me wrong. This is a beautiful vision. But what's quite perplexing, if one is familiar with King's I Have a Dream speech, is that somehow this line has come to represent the essence of the speech. Somehow I Have a Dream has morphed into simply a call for diversity. But upon a closer listening to the entirety of the speech, one cannot help but grasp that his message was fundamental about freedom and justice, about the undoing of a racially oppressive system. I Have a Dream was a proclamation that it is time for freedom and justice now. Not tomorrow, not sometime in the undetermined future, but now. Dr. King was keenly aware that not everyone understood the fierce urgency of now. This is something he regularly spoke of as he addressed the importance of the struggle for freedom. But there was one group that he had earnestly hoped would not only understand the urgency of the moment, but partner in the struggle to spread the gospel of freedom. He himself explains, I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. But instead, King found himself in 1963 sitting in a dingy jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. He had been the leader of the civil rights movement for eight years by this time. Admittedly disappointed, perhaps even a bit despondent, 
He is responding to the letter of a group of white ministers who refer to the nonviolent resistance of civil rights movement participants as, quote, unwise and untimely. None too pleased at the campaign for change that had emerged in Birmingham in 1963, these ministers made their views clear in writing, declaring we respectfully urge those who strongly oppose desegregation to pursue their convictions in the courts and in the meantime, peaceably to abide by the decisions of those same courts. We do not believe that these days of new hope are days when extreme measures are justified in Birmingham. People's perspectives are everything. Are they not? They saw that 1963 was a day of new hope. The courts will bring forth justice, they said. These ministers urged King and others in the movement to place their trust in a system that had been responsible for engaging in or at least supporting the killing, beating, thwarting, denying, rejecting, segregating, and dehumanizing of Blacks and other people of color, specifically American Indians, since before the U.S. was even a nation. For sure, the Supreme Court had ruled Brown v. Board of Education that racially segregated schools were unconstitutional nine years prior. But in reality, on the ground in 1963, schools were still overwhelmingly segregated in the South. Black children remained severely disadvantaged. Black adults, too. King's response to this criticism, as outlined in his letter from a Birmingham jail, is an amazingly eloquent example of a mix of love and truth. He speaks with respect care and humility, while also standing firm in the truth, resisting compromise and its counterfeit promises that can sometimes tempt us to equivocate and render the truth we do speak powerless. Pointing out a flaw in these white ministers' plea, he writes, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. But your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. Do not these words sound so apropos today as people continue to protest for the dignity of Black life without the support of many white ministers. This was a white power structure where, as King described, quote, local racists intimidated, mobbed, and even killed Blacks with impunity, where churches and homes were being bombed and there was no justice to be had. And yet, and yet, these white ministers said the movement was unwise and untimely. 
and encourage the oppressed to have hope in the oppressor. I want to emphasize something here, actually, that often gets lost as we talk about reconciliation. And again, that is what King refers to in his book, Why We Can't Wait, The White Power Structure. And what I want to emphasize here, you see, is that a white power structure is a social system, one that has been cultivated and spread throughout not only this country, but that has been cultivated and spread throughout the globe since the expansion of European colonization that began in the 16th century. It is a system based upon the creation of race. Yes, race is a creation and the perpetuation of race. Often, people try to minimize race to just the categorizations or the groupings or identities. But race isn't just about categories, groupings, or identities. No, race is a system. And the white power structure King referred to is a system of white supremacy. Now, recently, uh, very recently, in fact, now we are hearing more and more about this in the public arena. And for sure, it is important to name the racial system we are talking about here. That is white supremacy because language matters. There are times when certain language is insufficient because it doesn't tell the truth, or at least not the whole truth. And half-truths are lies, are they not? So what is white supremacy? Well, white supremacy is a racial system that rests on the belief that white people are superior to all other people. Superior in what, you ask? Well, superior in all the ways that really matter. Well, what ways really matter, you might ask? Well, those that white people in power decide really matter. And you say, Dr. Little Edwards, that answer makes no sense. No, it doesn't. But neither does white supremacy. White supremacist societies have emerged and are sustained in one of two ways. The first way is through force. People in power who became white by their own design decide that people who in their minds look different from them were some other inferior race of people, not white. Due to their supposed inferiority as a race, they were not worthy of having power. Often, this meant power over land they were living on, power to make decisions about their own lives, power over their own bodies, power to just exist. Moreover, it was believed that white supposed superiority was by divine design, right? What that means is that this was God's will. And since God designed it this way, it is white people's manifest destiny to have all, or at least the vast majority of power. And if that has to happen by force, and violence, well then, so be it. I'm not going to spend time reviewing in detail the sociological and historical legacy of how white supremacy was established by force. 
there are many books that you can read on this. But briefly, we can just point to the systems of slavery and Jim Crow, the policies and laws that legitimated the genocide and segregation of American Indians, citizenship laws that said only white people could naturalize as citizens, and the list goes on. But there is a bit of a problem here. You see, the problem with white supremacy by force is it requires a whole lot of resources. Human life, resources when it comes to money, energy, time, and that includes that of whites. White supremacy by force is simply not sustainable. The other way white supremacy reigns is through white hegemony. White hegemony is actually the preferred way of sustaining white supremacy. So what is white supremacy? I'm sorry, what is white hegemony? White hegemony is a white supremacist system where white dominance and the ideologies, theologies, norms and values that sustain it are taken for granted by whites and people of color. I'm gonna repeat that. White hegemony is a white supremacist system where white dominance, that is their near complete control, their ideologies, that is their views about how the world should work, their theologies, that is their ideas about the character and nature of God, their norms, that is how people ought to behave, and the values that sustain these, that is what they consider important, these are taken for granted. They're not questioned by whites and people of color. A white supremacist society that is hegemonic is in many ways on autopilot. The vast majority of people, whether white or not, accepts or is at least resigned to the reality that people of color are, for instance, disproportionately unemployed, they make less money, have considerably less wealth, have less freedom, are put in jail or prison at far higher rates than, are more likely to live in the less desirable communities, they occupy relatively few positions of real power, are disproportionately relegated to less desirable jobs, and are killed without justice as compared to whites. Often when we talk of race though, the focus is on people of color. In Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois, who's also a sociologist and an awesome scholar, wrote uh, in his book that was published in 1903, how people of color are often situated as a problem. He's reflecting on his own personal experience with this. He says, they approach me in a half hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town. Or, do not these Southern outrages make your blood boil? How does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. And yet being a problem is a strange experience. 
What's really interesting is that even white people during this time, which is 1903, who were sympathetic to the cause of colored people at that time, they perceived people of color, black people specifically, as a problem to be solved. To put it another way, black people were, were objectified. They were not seen as equals to work side by side with, or dare I say submit to, but were people to help. Black people were projects. And that too is objectification and dehumanization. And that thinking continues on today. But Dubois came to understand in his development as a scholar is that at the center of white supremacy really isn't the understanding of the souls of black folk or people of color, but rather understanding what it means to be white, which he wrote about in a piece later on in his career called The Souls of White Folk. Over the past couple decades, scholars have begun to uniquely interrogate this, taking this up, looking at whiteness. And so what is whiteness? Whiteness is distinguished from both white supremacy and white hegemony in that it encompasses white identity and that white identity has meaning too. And when I say white here, I'm particularly talking about Anglos. To be white is to be able to live in a society where your culture and your dominance is presumed to be normative. It's just the way things are and ought to be in fact. To be white is to go about life with a belief that you are right, that you know better, at least better than people of color. To be white also means to be oblivious about one's race. That is, if your white other groups have a race, that race has meaning and implications, but you and other whites are actually, for all intents and purposes, raceless. And this is the slippery part. If the vast majority of white people see themselves as essentially raceless, then to be white doesn't really mean anything. And if to be white does not really mean anything, then there is no white hegemony. And if there is no white hegemony, then there is no white supremacy. And this is precisely why the struggle for freedom for people of color in the United States has been so challenging. And, and this is precisely why it makes people uncomfortable when whiteness and the privileges it bestows are named. Because the hiddenness of whiteness is the linchpin of the white supremacist system. But it takes people who are willing to see the system for what it is, to stand firm against it and speak the truth about it over and over and over again in hopes of spreading the gospel of love and freedom. By 1963 in Birmingham, King had come to an unfortunate reality. So often, he writes, the church is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal 
sanction of things as they are. King expresses his disappointment in the church. He expresses his disappointment in the church and how it reinforces the status quo. To put it in terms that I'm talking about here, his disappointment was in how the church reinforces white supremacy. The reason I emphasize that the real issue, though, with white supremacy is a system and not people, as did King, is because that is, in fact, the problem, the system of white supremacy. You see, because if we're going to be honest, really honest, we know that if we stand and choose to speak out against white supremacy, then the system of white supremacy will respond and often with violence. That response is not just reserved, though, for people of color. That is to say, a person's whiteness will not protect them once they break that code of silence or just going along and they begin to disrupt white supremacy. White people who have stood firm in an effort to spread the gospel of love and freedom in a way that disrupts white supremacy experience consequences. And these may be a loss of friendship. Maybe their family ostracized them. Perhaps their church made it clear they're not wanted in the fellowship. Maybe they lose opportunities at work. It can also mean physical harm or even death. And our history has shown this to be the case. And today, in this moment, yet again, we're hearing of these same outcomes. We are again seeing this play out right in front of us in this historical moment. Pastors, including white ones, are being fired for speaking out about justice. White saints are leaving, losing their friends. White people are losing relationships with their family, or those relationships are being strained. Some whites have been physically harmed and even killed because they chose to stand and march for black lives. And on the flip side, people of color can and do support white supremacy. In that letter from the white Birmingham ministers to King, they note blacks who were not supportive of the civil rights movement demonstrations saying, we agree rather with certain local Negro leadership, which has called for honest and open negotiation of racial issues in our area. Who these black leaders are, we're not sure. And it doesn't really matter. And quite frankly, it's not surprising that in a system of white supremacy, people of color would cooperate with the status quo. I mean, if white people will experience harm, whether that be social or psychological or physical for challenging white supremacy, then you know people of color will. And we have for centuries, and we still do. We don't have some kind of innate resistance to pain, trauma, and harm. We too may choose to self-protect by supporting the system of white supremacy. I often joke that God is a sociologist. And I really do believe that. And that is because God would often call entire nations to task for their sin. Now that can make us a bit uncomfortable, particularly in an individualistic society like the United States. But this is a common occurrence throughout scripture. 
when the Lord, through the prophets, called out Israel for being a thoroughly unjust society that set up systems that oppress the powerless? Do we think everyone was equally culpable in the creation of Israel's unjust oppressive system? I am guessing, although I cannot be sure, there were some people in Israel, maybe even most, who weren't actively engaged in oppressing the powerless. I am guessing rather that these people just didn't say anything. They were silent. They turned a blind eye. But what strikes me is God does not single out those who were egregiously unjust or unrighteous. He called out the whole nation. And you know what? The rough times were prophesied to come down on everyone. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, said, He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And then after this came the woes, a whole lot of woes. And we're not talking about the dance, the woe. Anybody have teenage kids, you know about that. And for the sake of time, let's just say woes are not good. <laughs> but my point here is not to prophesy impending doom. I don't know the future. And no doubt taking a stand and speaking up and disrupting the status quo takes tremendous courage. Silence is easier, even personally safer, at least in the short run. The question I ask is, no matter how afraid we may be to stand, to speak, can our fear justify our silence, our inaction? Because silence is approval. Silence is culpability. And King put it this way. The ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. King and others in the civil rights movement fought the battle of Jim Crow. And in many respects, they won. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and Fair Housing Act of 1968 are victories won in this battle. These victories have impacted how we do life, who we work with, who we live near, who we see on the streets every day, who we go to school with, who we sit near in public spaces, and how we are represented in government among a myriad of other changes. And I, for one, am truly grateful for these victories. I am. And I'm sure you are too. But the war was against the system of white supremacy, that white power structure, not Jim Crow. That was the case before Jim Crow, and that remains the case today. White supremacy is still weaved into the very fabric of American society. And there's not a part of American society that is altogether free of it. And while often hidden, white supremacy has yet again become more visible in our country. And so the war wages on. And this isn't a war of physical weapons, but a war of the spirit. It's a war of love, of freedom, of truth. For those of us who choose to sign up for this war, we must find a delicate balance on this very taut tightrope of love and truth. 
We must treat oppressors with compassion, dignity, and respect while never wavering and telling the truth, the whole truth. It is this balance that we must strike just right, one between love and truth, if we are to stand for freedom and justice as followers of Christ. Being loving without truth leads to error. You see, when we sacrifice telling the truth, the oppressed are left in their oppressed state. Bondage persists, injustice continues to reign. But without love, we can judge the oppressors and condemn them, something only reserved for the one that is all-knowing and all-powerful. There were many before King who led and fought in other battles in the war of love and truth against white supremacy. They got the fierce urgency of now for their time. Their Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Susan B. Anthony, A. Philip Randolph, Ida B. Wells, Howard Thurman. And since King, there's Clyde Bellacourt, Cesar Chavez, Gustavo Gutierrez, Alicia Garza. But I wonder, what if they didn't get in their gut a fierce urgency of now to speak, to act, to stand against a system of white supremacy? What if they rather place their trust in time, just waiting it out? Me, personally, I am so grateful they did not. So I wonder, do you have a fierce urgency stirring in you that the moment is now? Do you see God moving in this moment in history? Gustavo Gutierrez, a philosopher and priest, reminds us in his book, The Theology of Liberation, that to grasp the very meaning of Christianity requires us to acknowledge the historical arc of humankind. It requires a sight that God is working in and through all human actions on earth. And the thing that God is doing ultimately, what God desires for us, is freedom. In fact, it's God's purpose that humans be free. And Jesus says this directly in Luke 4.18, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And then later in Galatians, Paul builds on this and he puts it this way. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Gutierrez then, in the Theology of Liberation, he highlights how freedom is really an expression of God's love. And he puts it this way, the fullness of liberation, a free gift from Christ, is communion with God and with other human beings. And he also says, and in truth, freedom is a relationship between two persons. Being free means being free for the other. Being free means being free for the other, not for ourselves. 
What I appreciate about Gutierrez's explication, as well as that of other theologians, including Howard Thurman and, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is they understood deep in their souls that God intends us to be fully free. That freedom ought to extend to our whole being, our souls, our minds, and, yes, our bodies. Indeed, the beloved community is one where people are fully free to live out their giftedness and experience mutual love with God and neighbor. How then can freedom and love be achieved in a world where systems of poverty, injustice, and oppression are allowed to persist? It cannot be so. The church mustn't be the church of the status quo, but the church in pursuit of love and freedom for all humankind. For our God says that he so loves the world. Well, we have some important stuff coming ahead and many people are talking about the election. And many people place their hope perhaps in an election and by all means vote. <laughs> but really this moment isn't a moment about the politics or voting. <laughs> it's the moment for the church to repent where needed from white supremacy and stand united. It is the moment to stand together as the empowered, spirit-filled children of the Almighty God against the white supremacist system of today in love and truth together, black brothers and sisters, white brothers and sisters, Latinx brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, American Indian brothers and sisters, those who are Methodist, AME, National Baptists, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Southern Baptists, Episcopals, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Kojic, Assemblies of God, non-denominational and others affiliated with other denominations. This is the moment for the church. Martin Luther King Jr. at the young age of 26 followed that stirring of a fierce urgency of now. My hope is we won't allow that fire to die, but that together we would seize our moment in history and fan the flames of the fierce urgency of now at this historical juncture to speak to stand in, in, to stand in and for the love, freedom, and truth found in Jesus Christ our Lord.